Listener supported. WNYC Studios. WQXR. In conversation. I remember very clearly I had just graduated from high school. It was the summer of 2011. One day I get an email from a friend. The subject is just watch this. So, of course, I figured it would be some ridiculous YouTube fail video compilation or sports highlights, the kinds of things we would send each other all the time. But actually, it was a clip from the BBC proms of a piece that had just premiered there the week before called The Concerto for DJ Turntables and Orchestra by a composer named Gabriel Prokofiev. And so I started watching the video, and by about 30 seconds in, I was completely slack-jawed. Here was this DJ who looked like no one I'd ever seen before standing in front of an orchestra, wearing a t-shirt and jeans set up in front of a laptop that had graffiti all over it. And yet he was doing things that were just as virtuosic, or maybe even more virtuosic, than any concert pianist or cellist or violinist I'd ever seen. I watched that video at least 10 times that day. Looking back on it, I think the reason I was so floored was because the piece is such an effortless combination of old and new. It was rooted in the deep history of classical music, but also showed how much still there was left to say. And that made a really strong impression on me at such a young age. A few weeks ago, I was lucky enough to have the chance to speak with that amazingly innovative composer, Gabriel Prokofiev, over Zoom from his home in London, about his new recording of the Turntable Concerto, how he composes, and what the future may hold for classical music. I'm Zev Kane. You're listening to WQXR, Classical New York, in conversation with Gabriel Prokofiev. So just generally, how are you, how are you holding up? It's interesting, actually, because um, for me, I mean, I, you know, I spend a lot of my life as a composer searching for self-isolation. And so I'm really used to it. At first, I thought oh, this is going to be pretty plain sailing for me. But actually, no, it has been challenging as well, because there's that awareness that things are not the same outside your door, you know, and, and actually does have a quite a strong emotional effect on, on the working life. So I kind of think I'm back in a good place. And I've, I've, I have written some music in response as well to the situation. And that's kind of helped me in a therapeutic way. Yeah, I know so many composers, you know, get ambient inspiration from the sounds around them, you know, the subways, the the streets, and, and we don't have that right now. Yeah, sure. And for me, actually, so much of my work's inspired by the city and, and cycling. Every morning, I take my daughter to school. I do the school run on one of these big cargo bikes, and um, that's really key to my routine, and that's gone. It's a simple thing, but you lose that, and suddenly you find you've got to work hard to get back onto your structure you know these little details make a big difference i want to talk about the turntable concerto where did you come up with this wildly unorthodox idea to write a concerto for dj turntables so the story about it coming back is is funny actually because it wasn't my idea to do the concerto for turntables there's a pianist and events producer called will dutter and he'd just seen DJ Yoda, who did the original recording of the piece, perform at some big festival and was like blown away by him and was like, oh my God, the turntables are so cool. Oh God, what if someone did a concerto for them? And he knew that I was into different genres. I'd done remixes of classical music. And so he approached me for a 
project he wanted to do would I write this concerto and I I was kind of skeptical because it does seem like one of those things someone would try to do as a kind of make classical music kind of hip for me there were kind of warning signs all over it I actually am a big fan of turntablism as well and I had already done a piece with turntables and I I'd seen people virtuoso DJs and I knew that this is like uh, right up there the level of musicianship in the turntable world is the same as virtuoso pianists and violinists just hasn't been recognized by the classical world and that actually inspired me that made me think I want to show people how amazing the turntables can be and I thought I just have to work out how to do it and and the solution came when I realized that if I put sounds from the orchestra on the turntables and so that the turntables only ever scratches with sounds that come from the orchestra that will connect it sonically to the orchestra and it will make the whole piece have a kind of organic coherence here you know you have the orchestra play passages and suddenly they get chopped up manipulated scratched up by the turntables so it has this musical journey do you have a favorite moment in the concerto or a moment that you'd like to talk us through that you think really demonstrates the expressive potential of the turntables it's very difficult, actually, because there are all different bits that I really like, and there's room for improvisation. You know, it's a bit like a Baroque concerto. There are a lot of passages where I give the basic rhythm and the basic idea, but they can do what they like. I mean, I love the cadenzas. In the third movement, there's a cadenza when the orchestra aren't playing, and the turntablist just takes a few little phrases from the orchestra and builds loops and grooves out of them, and that's just very exciting because then you feel an orchestral music kind of turning almost into hip-hop the fourth movement the slow movement is interesting because he plays a melody with the turntables it sounds almost like a theremin and that's a real surprise to a lot of people when they hear the piece they're like whoa that's the, the turntables can do that you know and that's a whole new area for turntables This new album uh, with your turntable concerto and the cello concerto comes on the heels of another album of your, of your concertos that was uh, also released last year on Signum. Do you have a particular affinity for the concerto form? Is there something about that genre that really resonates for you? Definitely. Yeah, I really, I have to say I'm a big fan of the concerto and I just, I just want to keep writing concertos actually because um, there's a communicative aspect to it that I find really interesting, which is that you have a soloist the protagonist standing at the front of the stage facing the audience. So there's this person that you can identify with and they're playing to you. It just sets up a situation that I think draws the listener in. And for me, you know, communication with music is so important. So having someone facing the audience means something. And and so you, you get a kind of deeper one-on-one -on -one intimate human engagement with the musician, which I think really does affects your experience of the piece when you have a conductor with just a symphony orchestra the conductor's back is turned to the audience you know which isn't in terms of sort of presentation it's not ideal because you can't actually see the person who's in charge and that you know on a very basic level can be less inviting and then obviously I love the on a musical level I just love having a solo instrument and exploring their interaction with the other instruments
And finally, it's a great way to really explore an instrument. So you can just create so much different, exciting imagery. And so I've written concertos for quite diverse instruments, and that's been really fun. Is there an instrument that you're really itching to write a concerto for next? I'm actually just starting a viola concerto. I don't feel like there's actually like a masterwork concerto for viola. But there's a reason. There's a good reason. The viola is not a loud instrument. I, when I wrote my cello concerto, I had the shock of my life when in the first rehearsal when the, the cello just disappeared. I was looking at the cellist like, why aren't you playing? And then I realised he was. And so imagine the viola, it's just going to completely disappear. So that's obviously not that encouraging for people who want to write expressive and, and, and you know, dramatic concerti if the instrument in question, the solo instrument, disappears. But I'm working with Max Rusanoff, a brilliant violist, and he's a really good conductor as well. He's been conducting seriously for, for many years now. And so this is going to be for a conductor violist. So he's going to conduct the orchestra in all the loud passages and stop playing the viola because there's no point in playing it when the orchestra are playing loud. And then they're going to go quiet and then he's going to pick up the viola and we're going to have these intimate conversations with him and other parts of the orchestra. The first recording of your piece, Beethoven 9 Symphonic Remix, was released on Naxos in March. And the Beethoven electronics also have a very prominent part um, the choir is not in the flesh in the Beethoven. It's vocal samples. Was that a moment where you felt like it was incumbent to use electronics to produce that kind of remixing effect? This, in many respects, it was a, it was a solution to a practical issue because there wasn't really going to be time for the choir to learn it. So that was one issue. What I thought was, you know, I'm doing a remix, so I, want, I wanted the chorus to be there, but I, I really wanted to chop it up and do something different. And using a sampler with little snippets and little slices of the, the choir. It did help actually add to the, the kind of contemporary 21st century feel of the piece. In so many forms of electronic music, remixing a track is like one of the highest honors you can give it. In classical music, remix culture doesn't really exist in the same way. Purists get pretty fussy, especially when you mess around with a, a sacred cow like the Beethoven's Ninth. Um, was it nerve-wracking to approach the Ninth from the perspective of a remix? Were you concerned about how it would be received? When I started, I was like, I kept questioning what the hell am I doing, you know? And at that stage of my career, I'd done the concerto for turntables, and this was going to be my second big orchestral piece. And, and I kept saying, look, this is never going to even touch a hair on the back of the Ninth Symphony. This is just a little tribute to it. So, you know, nothing to lose really by just giving it a go. I know you've spoken a lot and written a lot in the past about how you came to music, your own journey, classical music specifically, although music certainly runs in your family. You're the grandson of Sergei Prokofiev. Would you mind talking a little bit about your relationship with, with your grandfather's music and his legacy? Well, Sergei is a, you know, he's a unique and incredible composer, and um, I'm a massive fan of his music. I'm very, very close to it. And on one hand, it's a great inspiration. On the other hand, it is intimidating. So I certainly went through periods in my life when I was definitely kind of creatively intimidated by my family name and heritage, and I didn't get stuck into composition as much as I, I would have I wish I had. You know, I, I got a lot of my confidence firstly from writing pop songs as a teenager. 
that's how I knew I was passionate about music because I, I didn't connect that to my grandfather at all and I just wrote loads of songs and I just loved doing that so much that that made me realise that music was the career I wanted to follow. And then, and then I did electroacoustic music, which was a good way of learning about composition and finding a musical voice, but without really being comparable to my grandfather because he never wrote electronic music. It wasn't around really in his time. And, and that was a great way for me to just gain confidence as a composer. And then once I started going back to more classical style music, I just realised how much I love writing that. And, and I had a good response to the music. And then that gave me the confidence to go for it. You founded a record label in 2004 called Non-Classical. I assume you chose that title very intentionally. Do you think the term classical is too restrictive or insufficient in some way to describe your music? To explain the the name Non-Classical for the record label, the idea really was that it was presenting classical music in a non-traditional way, and therefore it was non-classical, but actually still classical. I, I felt that by mentioning the word classical, that did give a hint that it was somehow connected to classical music. Funnily enough, I would argue that what I'm doing is very classical. You know, if you look at any collection of keyboard music, for example, it's full of minuets and gavottes and sarabands and all these dances that were literally just that. They were dances that people would dance to in parties or get-togethers. And those dance forms just became part of the musical language, the classical composition. But that's got lost in the 20th century pretty much. Very few people write contemporary classical music that's inspired by the dance music of the time, and that's exactly what I'm doing. So I'd say I'm, I am very classical. I'm using aspects of you know, some of the rhythms that I've heard in clubs, whether it's hip-hop or techno. That sound, well, that's part of who I am. That's part of a, the culture I live in in London, and I shouldn't censor that from the classical music. You know, the, It's silly that we somehow segregate different musical styles and culture and classical music should in a way be celebrating all different aspects of culture but it's just presenting it perhaps with an orchestra or in a piece that's on a deeper musical journey than a four or five minute track the the problem is is that classical's kind of boxed itself in in a certain image but there's doesn't mean there's not room for classical music that's much more informal and you know think of chamber music that means music to play at home and now when people have chamber music concerts it's in some recital hall and everyone's sitting in rows that was not what chamber music was in the 19th century these were informal get-togethers people playing music for each other and that's what we need to rediscover actually you know that joy of chamber music and show that classical music doesn't have to always be so formal and heavy with the non-classical club which was the club night that, that started with the record label, we're doing often quite challenging classical music in nightclubs and bars, and um, it works really well. People stop talking when the musicians play. You know, they're still respectful, and you feel more relaxed. The music's actually more enjoyable. The whole situation is more comfortable and relaxed and more everyday. And often something that's really quite challenging feels less challenging. It makes more sense. That was my guest, composer Gabriel Prokofiev. You can hear new recordings of his concerto for turntables and orchestra and his Beethoven 9 symphonic remix now available on all streaming platforms. 
This interview was produced by Max Fine with help from Rosa Gollin. Our technical producer is George Wellington, and Lucas Krohn Grimberga is our executive producer. I'm Zev Kane. You're listening to WQXR, classical New York in conversation. Thank <laughs> you.